Welcome back to the third week of Pod Clubhouse's coverage of the latest season, season four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for episodes five and six. This is Paul. This is Caroline. Episode five is called How to Chew Quietly and Influence People, directed by Scott Ellis and written by Kate Fodor. This is the first episode this season not written and directed by Amy and Dan. I am floored by this. Do we know anything about this writer and or director? What I could find was that Mr. Ellis has a long resume of directing uh, both plays and sitcoms, mostly sitcoms, I would say. Whereas Kate Fodor, maybe Fodor, if you're in the Hodor world, um, (laughs) uh, she is mostly known as a playwright. I mentioned this to you offline. She is married to a character known as Dean the Dog Killer from uh, Leftovers, which was our very first podcast. So we didn't know you, but we knew you. <laughs> what a fun connection, Kate, exactly. that we have with you. You know, I think you can you can feel a little playwright action in this, knowing now that the director and the writer have play experience. I feel like there's something there, right? The camera movement, I would say. Uh, if, you, if you watch a lot of Amy and Dan stuff, especially since initial run of Gilmore Girls. They've taken advantage of their higher budgets and whatever resources have been made available to them and really had a more dynamic camera moving around in and out of cars, over convertibles, you know, dancing scenes of gigantic scale, stuff like that. And this episode, very uh, symmetrical, you know, conversations, you know, one looking left, one looking right, talking back and forth, um, thinking of the shy and and Midge scene. But it's not that there was any uh, less dynamic nature to what was happening on screen. It's just the presentation was more traditional, I think. I'm going to say more static. Does that sound right? We're not, yeah. we weren't like running all around the room. We were just sitting the camera almost on like a tripod, like watching two people talk. It worked for the Godfather. So it's a tried and true <laughs> uh, way of doing things. Absolutely. Let, you know, speaking of tradition, let's talk with our matchmaker, Rose, because we've got some big movement in her career. What did you think about Max Medina for you Gilmore Girls fans joining us as Solomon Melamed, which is like the biggest tongue twister name? Right. We don't get very many Melamids in Texas. Solomon so. Melamed. That, it's not just the Melamid. It's the Solomon Melamid. It's hard to say. I guess we've got to start taking Rose seriously at this point. I mean, since this is paired with uh, the episode that comes after it, we know that she is being taken seriously in the matchmaker world. She's clearly having some success enough to ruffle feathers. Ruffle feathers. I guess in like the sales world, this would be like pulling a big account from an established rep, that sort of thing. Yeah, because just like in the sales world, there's like territories, right? Like everybody's going to work their own section. And she has come in on the scene with nary a care in the world about what people have, what territory. She had no idea. It's it's like Breaking Bad all over again, really. It really is. She's going to have to start killing people in order (laughs) to work her way up into the echelons that that control things. So let's, let's go all the way through with Rose on this matchmaking thing. I mean, I was very excited for her that it seemed like the Melamid family were very unlucky in love. This seemed to be a treasure trove of homely people 
that she could <laughs> finally really cash in on. But in the in episode six, we have the matchmaker mafia who has to put the smack down on her. Episode six, incidentally, was called Maisel versus Lennon colon the cut contest uh, directed by Amy, written by both Dan and Amy. I've, I've been watching Gilmore Girls with you for a long time. Kelly Bishop on screen when she is doing her, you know, I am in charge kind of <laughs> voice. And it's her perfect Emily Gilmore. We've seen her on stage being interviewed before, and she is a very warm and funny person in real life. So to know that she can make other women just crack like she did with poor Rose in this scene is so amusing because when you see her in real life and she's someone that that you could probably you know sing along with music in the car probably <laughs> it messes with your head a little bit I think to see that but she's great at doing it is my is my main point we've spoken a couple times so far in this podcast about how the Paladinos really thrive at these kinds of um, multi-pronged conversations that feature their signature rapid-fire, rat-a-tat-tat sort of dialogue. And these ladies representing almost like, almost like again, the godfather, the, uh, the five families, if you will. Mm, uh, I love that. <laughs> in New York. Uh, feature that same, same kind of thing. Like they've had this, this kind of meeting before. It's no big deal shutting down a, an upstart they just they're just going to have have lunch while they take a, another woman's livelihood away i also loved for you a year in the life fans we got to see jackie hoffman who played esther and the, if she, you guys remember, she was always filing on the, in the, in the Star's Hollow Gazette office. She played Gita, and she was freaking hilarious. All of them were hilarious. I loved all of them. They were so funny to me. They were so just like cutthroat. But then also, like you said, like ready to just eat lunch <laughs> and just hang out. Like this is the way it is. There was no discussion to be had. You will cease and desist. Another odd connection to our days in the leftovers, Gladys, who, you know, remember yes. Gladys died from being stoned? I do. Remember Good old Gladys. Gladys. Yeah. Marceline, I'll say Hugo, maybe Hugo. She plays Molly, one of the other heads of the um, territories in the matchmaking world in New York. How funny, right? I know, right? It's, I mean, it's like, what a cool table. Very funny, very personal to us. So loving all of that. And this storyline really makes me scratch my head. What will Rose do? What do you think, Paul? Is she going to be able to stay a matchmaker and really try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these women? Or is she going to have to abandon this? Because she has a huge moment with Midge in this where they have to butt heads really freaking hard because she is convinced that there's no way she can be a successful matchmaker so long as Midge is going to be working at this strip club. So she is like putting Midge, you know, toes to the fire here. Like you're going to have to freaking drop everything you're doing because I want to be successful. But yet really she's got this whole other group of ladies really like putting the pressure on her. So now what? What do you think? She, with the support of whoever listens to her, because I don't know that anyone else is like talking to her, like, like, you know, talking about work when you go home, like she doesn't quite have the support of everybody, but if they do. Who are you talking about? Abe and Midge. Okay. I think they'd say 
fuck them. Do your do your thing. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? I mean, I mean, they mentioned the wars, which was pretty funny, <laughs> um, right? The wars. Yes. <laughs> uh, did you notice that Kelly Bishop's name was Benedetta? It's a very kind of sinister sounding it's, name. Well, she was the she was the Italian. Benedetta. She said she represented the Italians. The Italians, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you know she was scared in the moment. She's got loyal people. She's doing well. One person is supposed to represent all of the Jewish people in New York. That's a large community. She operated a long time without even hearing about this other person. So I think there's plenty of room for her to operate. What are they going to do? It's very curious. I mean, this is the theme of these two episodes for me. It's hard hitting the women helping women or women hurting women. And I'm very curious to see if these women decide to band together for good or for evil against Rose. That's interesting that you say it like that, because the theme, you know, coming off of last season, the we're not going to let men blow up our lives anymore theme. No one ever took into account that other women would be in the way waiting to tear you down, whether you're Midge or whether you're Rose. They didn't anticipate that. And it's turning out that they are actually bigger bulldogs than the men who blew up their lives. And we're going to see that coming throughout episode five and six. There's going to be landmines everywhere of the female variety. Rose is going to have to come up with something pretty clever and diabolical, I think, in order to sidestep these women. I do not think she can go toe-to-toe with them. I don't think she can just keep operating business as usual. You know what normally happens in situations like this? (laughs) You got to give them a taste, Paul. Oh, yeah. She's got to pay them off. If she ends up doing something within their territory, she's got to give them a cut. That's the way you have to play the game. That's the way I see this working out. Gotta wet my beak. Gotta wet their beaks. Gotta make it worth it so that they can turn their head from your business. Exactly right. That's about the only way I see this working out. I don't see her being able to just yell at them or something. Or ignore them. Mm Mm-mm. Who's next on our chopping block? Susie, right? And the unending parade of qualified women. I thought the, the secretaries all seemed about the same. But it was very funny that she didn't have any idea how to go about hiring anybody. I like that she kept like pulling out her book and like reading stuff. But, you know, honestly, for Susie, she doesn't just need someone who's competent. There has to be some level of understanding how this particular business works and getting along with Susie, like getting Susie and like what she needs. That's fair. Because she's not really like a classic boss, if you will. I mean, hello, she's reading the manual. Well, and yeah, exactly. She doesn't know what she doesn't know about running a business at all but she's following her her gut like that's the whole deal with alfie the magician is that she's decided to follow her gut but she doesn't know what the other administrative parts of running a business include just yet Alfie is a question mark for me. I understand that this is all rooted in keeping this promise to herself that she is not going to let those unique, wonderful individuals in the world, like she views Jackie, to be ignored. She's going to do something to make them seen. I have serious concerns that Alfie's character might not actually be capable of being this level of performer that she is hoping he can be do you see some actual potential in him not just his talent 
but in him. I want to, so I'll say I do. <laughs> um, so far, his act, I'm giving Caroline air quotes, his act has been mostly annoying people at the bar. So his all of his feedback has probably been like, that's cute, kid. Go further away from me. Once he gets enough confidence to at least do a trick on a stage where people want to be entertained and he gets a little bit of positive feedback would change everything for him. See, Justin, when you're explaining that, I'm thinking this kid probably has some serious stage fright and or some mix of anxiety where everything you just said is like he can do his tricks when people are not looking directly at him, paying full attention to what he's doing. But the idea of him standing on the stage with a spotlight on him with a room full of people, that is like the polar opposite of how he's been behaving so far. Maybe that's for a reason. So he's like just destined to be like the 1960s Chris Angel. Ooh, <laughs> I hadn't considered that. Susie is going to have to get more creative, I believe, than just being able to put him dead center in a stage all by himself with the spotlight on him. Like, there's something just as you were talking, I didn't even think about this before, that was starting to kind of ache in my mom heart of like, I don't think that's possible. Like, I don't, if he has no experience having all those eyes on him and him, you have to have some showmanship. Well, he's got that, but it's... Well, how do you figure? Well, because he's got a lot of ease with some of that patter that that goes along with close-up magic. Okay. There is close-up magic, and there is like doing the big acts like you've got, you know, David Copperfield. But even smaller than that, you've got your Melinda, the first lady of magic. You know, you might be onto something because he was trying to work up some bigger tricks, and it was very frustrating for him. Remember, there was like yes. smoke coming out from underneath yes. the door and stuff because yes. he was putting pressure on himself to to go big. And maybe he's not ready to go big. Maybe. maybe it's not even that he's not ready. Maybe he's a close up ma- magician who does one on one illusions. Come on now. You have way too much background in this not to explain this to listeners. There are different types of magicians. Some specialize more with that, you know, card trick or look in your pocket or, you know, those kinds of uh, right up next to a person, which is different than the saw the girl in half, make the car disappear. And like wave your hands like real big and take up a whole stage as just like one person. So I'm a little nervous about Alfie. I I think that he has the potential to be something amazing, but I don't think it's going to be like she's trying to treat him the same as Midge. You know, like, okay, you just do your act on a stage and that's how you do it. I'm thinking we're going to have to, like, you know, book him for parties or something. Something close-up magic-ish, you know? Am I wrong? um, Maybe not even, like, kids' parties, but, like, corporate parties where they just want entertainers walking around. Yeah. That that exists. Exactly. So, you see how I'm already forming Alfie's big plan. (laughs) This is the career path. I'm just saying I don't know that... Alfie is going to be able to deliver for Susie the way she has him pointed in this direction at this point. And I, we're totally talking this out like on off the cuff. Like I didn't really think about Alfie. I was just thinking like maybe he's a flaky person. But like honestly, I think he's just just not this type of magician, which is so weird to talk about like that. <laughs> <laughs> But 
Susie on the whole, though, in this these two episodes, man, huge strides for her. No, I mean, she's gone from like one client. Now she has three clients. She's got a secretary. We've got an office. I, I'm pretty amazed at how far she's come. She's got a big bed. She's got a big bed. Yes. Uh, Hello. Look yeah. at the size of that bed. Yeah. She really got her shit together all of a sudden. Pretty amazing, I've got to say. I also think that this the secretary opportunity, it's really fascinating how they layer in women's obstacles in the workplace without really even any type of, you know, fanfare. When I see the secretary and I see the kids running around and and her being so capable, but at the same time, there's kids running around. I feel like a lot of people would look at that and be like, well, how annoying. You should just fire her and pick someone else. But if you take like a hot second and you'd be like, wait, like... This is supposed to be some sort of moment where you say, how are women supposed to get along in the workplace during this time when childcare is probably not an option for her? And I know she says there was no one to watch them. Really good, you know, social commentary in terms of like what women are facing trying to make their own careers. And they don't belabor it. It's just layered in. Yeah. It's just one more thing that women in the world are dealing with right now. And currently too, please, as if it's been fixed. In other Susie news, we've got Sophie back. Paul, were you happy to see Sophie Lennon? I think she's funny. Everything that she does, you know, like her disconnect with the common man, uh, being <laughs> tired from from needing to hail a cab or whatever. Yeah, holding her arm up. <laughs> yeah. I, I think her antics are funny, but I am seeing a lot of people on the various Maisel fan groups that are so done with the Sophie elements of the story. What she provides is, is that, um, opposite, like, like, like she's the foil. Yeah. She's the, she's the, uh, it's like when you put two magnets together and they bounce off of each other, right? Cause they're the same pole. It's like, they can't be together. Same deal with, with Midge and, and Sophie. I hate, you. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty amazing. I mean, what do you think about Sophie's tactics? Hiring a PI and finding out everything about... Dirty pool. Dirty pool. Man. Yeah, you yeah. did think that? Well, you didn't think smart? You thought well, dirty? But, uh, I mean... She wants to get Susie back as a manager and she's got to find an angle. You don't think this was a smart angle? Yeah, I guess. If you, if you want to buy into this kind of convoluted plot that Susie, this highly inexperienced manager, is the right person to drive her career forward at this point. Although they were made, the rest of the plot work around the idea that that's actually feasible, that Susie did the groundwork to get her onto the talk show, leading to the game show. So it all does work. So I guess, all right, all right, <laughs> fine. Yeah, it was smart. She needed someone to think outside the box, and Susie's been the only person willing and able to think outside the box, to look for other avenues to get things done. I mean, she's based, she can't go back and just do her Sophie Lennon act on stage. Well, part of not knowing what you don't know is all of the rules that kept anybody who had been in the business very long from making those decisions. They're thinking so much in the box that rule or this rule or that practice or the way people do things there, that all traps them from being able to think in a way to get 
Sophie moving again. Whereas Susie is just <laughs> Susie willing knows to do, nothing. Well, she's willing to you know throw anything at the wall, see what sticks, you know. And I think that that is exactly what Sophie needs right now. I loved her on the talk show. I mean, we have to talk about the Booker Mike Carr. He is Jason Ralph, who is another Broadway star and happens to be Rachel Brosnahan's real life husband. He is in this really giving this opportunity for Sophie to do all this banter. Super funny. I loved all the stuff. I loved the Sullivan. Too funny. That whole thing when I was on Sullivan. He was leaving his wife. Loved it. Sophie is so funny. Oh, my God. But raunchy. I'm sad that people are feeling done with her because I think that Midge and Susie need to continue to have some sort of tension because otherwise it's kind of too easy at this point right like i mean we would just go with it at this point she would just be collecting the money adding more clients but when you have this extra thorn in your side that is sophie there's so many more bumps in the road you can create so much more drama when we were pre-gaming this podcast knowing that we still have two episodes to go one week to go um we were kind of wondering how's this shake out you know in terms of Moving forward, the strip club versus, you know, the big plan or whatever. But if you fold Sophie into it and then you see the way it ended up with them going at it like cats and dogs on the set of the game show, then what if, and I haven't seen anything, what if you have a producer, a money person sees that and they're like, you know what? That's entertaining. Oh. And and then all of a sudden, yeah, you can move forward. You can have a big stage, but you have to work together now. And you have to almost do that like head-to-head Bickersons. Yes. It's like a dance-off. Right. A laugh-off, if you will. Mm-hmm. Hmm, fascinating. Just okay. a guess. Okay, okay. I could go with this. I mean, I'm. I was... Really thrilled to see that Sophie was able to make it through that Gordon Ford interview and be able to deflect so well that maybe should have given us a little bit of an idea that she can hold her own in a laugh off, right? She can take shit and she can dish it back and like be able to deflect. That was huge. She was a pro. So when she did get so envious of Midge getting those laughs in the warm up and she came out, we already knew Like, she's going to be able to shovel this shit, but, like, anything Midge says, she's going to just, like, throw it right back. Mm -hmm. Fascinating in this idea that this could be some sort of show. Now, I'm not familiar with any show during the 60s that would have been anything like that. Well, I mean, obviously— We're going to have to do some research on that. The idea would be that we want Midge to fly solo into superstardom and not need this. But she needed stair steps along the way. So, like, a buddy-type show, even though they're not— friends at all could make sense rather than just leaping to this solo Mary Tyler Moore show that's just her well and and I think it leads itself very well to everything we're speaking of with the push and pull of women helping or hurting each other this would almost be like hurting each other to help each other right the epitome of of the of the uh both ends of it but all instead of like the newspaper writer only cares about the hurting to help herself but in this case they would be hurting each other to help each other like so it's you know what i mean I don't, you said what is that called i'm not sure what's that called is that marriage <laughs> <laughs> oh how drew <laughs> i don't know i don't know what that's called but 
Yeah, I mean, I I think I think it's a thing. I, I think certainly certainly there's a lot of male comedy acts when you think about it. Actually, think about Abbott and Costello. Or think about the Three Stooges. There's like a lot of like picking at each other in order to get the laugh. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of those types of things. So I don't know. Maybe you're onto something. Maybe there's a female version of of kind of putting each other down for the laugh. Well, occasionally you do hear about maybe not pairings but groupings where on stage, they were fine. But then when the lights went off, the cameras turned off, they did not spend any time more together than they had to. Certainly our Golden Girls, what with Barther. Exactly. Barther did That's not one. enjoy. That's one, yeah. Them. Right. That could be. I mean, there's precedent there. Okay, okay. Fascinating, fascinating. Does she go back the next day after that? You mean, was she fired right then? Not even fired necessarily, but just like she was pride. doing a favor for yeah. Sophie. You know, she's trying, she's supposed to do this favor back and get Susie to take her on. So does she... I think she goes back until they tell her to stop. Okay. I think that's... It's a paycheck and we know everything Tupperware is parties... Everything is Belmore. But Tupperware parties are not going to pay the bills. And we've got this broken refrigerator. We've got money issues across the board. She's supposed to be getting paid super duper by NBC. So if NBC is cool with it and the audience played along with it because Sophie's like, let's start our game or whatever. Like she just went with it. Yeah. And it kind of seemed like it was the way it was supposed to happen. As, as long as she didn't get crosswise with someone like standards and practices even though it wasn't on air it was still in front of an audience so someone in terms of like decency standards at the time if it's as long as it didn't offend them okay then man just think keep she's still coming. going just keep coming. <laughs> i think she needs that sweet sweet money <laughs> sweet 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 money so mitch has a lot of roller coaster moments in these two episodes. I mean, we're talking about Sophie and her, but we have a lot going on. I mean, what did you think about the Shy Baldwin wedding and the closure we got, but that really complicated conversation we had? I don't want to take anything away from it by this comment, but what it reminded me of was the way Ben had to kind of screw up his courage and go and confront her about her mistreatment of him last season about the way she broke off their engagement. Right. God, I never call him Ben. She always called him Benjamin. Right. Zachary Levi, gotcha, if you will. Gotcha. I was like, Ben who? But it was the same kind of like, I'm going to talk, you're going to listen kind of conversation. In the in the Zachary Levi case, he only really needed to say things to her, but he needed to, but he could have just let it just, just lie and just hoped he would never see her again, but he had to straighten that out. Definitely, they both had stuff to get off their chest. Did it work for you? Did this static, plain spoken conversation, no no extra gimmicks, no, like we're not doing a bit, there's not women coming in and out of the door, there's not, you know, toilet paper falling on the floor, like nothing's happening. There are two people with no antics, just, just talking. Yeah, it did. I mean, by the end of it, the way that that shy had tried to backpedal and you know invite her out to some made up event or whatever whatever his his ending we'll just offer was for dinner. it made me really kind of sad for shy as a as a person like his his life now is is this sham that it has to be because of the time and and who he is but he's never going to have friends or any anybody that can that he can be honest with. All but uh, solidified that when I heard that 
the band wasn't there anymore. But more than anything, I had to pick my job off the floor when I heard that Reggie had been replaced, mm-hmm. bought off, essentially. God, that the marriage itself felt terrible for him to have to do that. But then to find out that the band and Reggie were gone and that basically he kind of almost had like a corporate kind of feel to him now. It was like a corporation was managing his career mm-hmm. instead of like his old buddy and people he's known forever. All of it felt very sad and and very like this guy is going to be like chewed up and spit out. You know, like I don't see how this is not going to end with him having like a, a nervous breakdown or something because there's no one there to protect him or or be a supportive shoulder in any way. No, I guess by the end of it, even though she's still emceeing at the strip club and et cetera, et cetera, you realize that she's already on a path to to wind up at least happier than he can ever really hope to be. He's a good cautionary tale, perhaps, when you just said that. You know, that makes me feel like the Susie's of the world, that that's that's her Reggie, you know? And maybe a little foreshadowing for like what could happen moving, you know, into maybe season five. Will we have an opportunity where she's like, you know what? I'm going to go with corporation type management versus this small niche, you know, person who's known me and grown up in this business with me, basically. Like, do you could you see that happening now? Mm-hmm. Like where this could come and she's going to have to draw on this experience and realize like that was not a good idea. I think I was most surprised by how strong Midge was in this conversation. She apologized. But when he did say, well, maybe we could get together for dinner. And she's like, we are not friends. That hit me. I don't think I could ever be so blunt with someone like that. Even though, I mean, I get it. I totally get it. But that was strong. That was a concrete blockade of like, we are never doing this again. Like you did me wrong so badly, but like we're cool, but like we are not friends. Really strong character development for her there because that is not her, you know, like think of the girl at the very beginning of all this, you know? Well, we had talked about it in an, earlier in the podcast, not this episode, but earlier episodes, just the idea that her development required learning the difference between friends and people she was going to work with and that she needed that distance in order to keep herself safe. And you had mentioned at the time that that might even be how Sophie wound up completely disconnected from anybody was that she got that notoriety very early on maybe and created way too much distance. But that's how she, you know, kept her safe space basically. She she didn't let anyone get possibly close enough to hurt her. And this is basically watching Shy become a Sophie, you know, where she just has paid people around her, but no Reggies, no friends, no nothing. Just mm. keeping it, you know, that sterile environment where everybody's just about, you know, contracts and payday, but nothing else, you know. So I guess maybe maybe there's something about stardom in general where you get to that point where you're no longer this like grassroots effort in a career and you do sort of lose all your friends and all those like kind of people who knew you when it's dangerous to do. And I think whenever we see those sort of like behind the scenes kind of thing, those people who manage to keep their sanity do tend to be the people who kept some best friends from like middle school, you know, around them in their little entourage, you know, they're not 
all just like, you know, paid to be there. Those people don't really make it, you know, at the end of the day. Cause the posse I, types. Yeah. Yeah. So man, I'm, I'm worried for shy. It was very interesting to figure out why they had been invited to the wedding in the first place. Cause that was a shocker. Now me, someone's going to pay me to do something I was already going to do. <laughs> like Paul, we're going to pay you to sit on the stool across from Caroline and talk about TV shows. Do you think I'd stand up and be like, well, I was going to do that anyway, so keep your filthy money. Or oh, <laughs> I'd be like, take that filthy money. <laughs> no, I would 100% take the check and sign the NDA. Because, I understand people have principles. But, but, but who even cares at this point? You already just said you weren't, you're not friends. If you're not like worried about being like a people pleaser and worrying about it looking just so, then freaking sign the NDA. For God's sake. Fix your fridge. Feed your kids. Fix your fridge. Feed. Pay the rent. You know, pay your manager, whatever cut of that that she gets. Right. I mean, all these people need the money. I understand that was supposed to look like it was noble or something. But for me, it just seemed you were 100% showing nothing to anyone. No one's impressed with you that you didn't take the money. Least of all, Susie, you kept the money out of her her little mitt, too. All of them. She was going to get 10% of, of that 12000 or whatever they got up to. And everybody could have used that money. So I think it was a bad move. I think she should have taken the money and signed the NDA. Like you said, she was going to keep it quiet anyway. So why not just sign it and give us some amount of relief to Shy? Like, even on that level, like, I'm not going to say anything. You know, now you got it in writing. So hmm, there you go. Mean, come on. I, I was going to do money. it anyway. I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> I would take the money. Speaking of money, it turns out that the strip club is doing very, very well. And we're really owing a lot to Midge. Eagle-eyed viewers should have noticed that the number of people in the audience had been increasing. And that the demographic makeup of the people in the audience was changing from sad old men <laughs> to, <laughs> to a mix of uh, men with their mistresses or, as they just more loudly pointed out, uh, women uh, in large groups. Uh, even to this day, people, well, women still like to go to strip clubs for, for a laugh. It's just a place to have fun, you know, and to feel like... I don't know. It's like a judgment-free zone. Everyone can just laugh and have fun and whatever. And there's something about the atmosphere of it being like judgment-free. I was super happy to see that the club was doing so well monetarily and really thrilled that the owner was willing to listen to money over any of Boise's concerns. Exactly. Finally, someone who just takes the money. <laughs> well, their argument about this isn't the place that we wanted, I, I understand. Like if I had opened a, a, a place, whatever it was, maybe it's not a, a burlesque house. Let's say it's know. a nerdery say, yeah, say, for people to play video say, games. Yeah. And it was supposed to be all your guy friends. But a bunch of girls start showing up playing My Little Pony or whatever My it is little pony. that girls play. Outrageous. But all of a sudden, I'm able to start eating steak rather than ramen because I have more money. I think I might adapt. That's just me. That is just me. What about you, Caroline? Do you see their point of view or more like, come on now, show me the money? The main thing about that whole conversation that struck a chord with me was, what is this about it being illegal? This is the first time that I had heard anything about that. 
why is Boise concerned about what's going on? Why is he giving us that side eye of like, we can't have women standing around out front chit-chatting and whatnot. It's going to draw too many eyes. I'm scared about some sort of cop raid happening. I don't know if it's going to be this season or if it's going to start off next season or whatever, but I really see Midge putting a lot of effort into this club. Almost feels like we're destined for there to be some sort of setback. One step forward, two steps back kind of thing. It seems like that's what he was warning. And when everyone just said, no, let's just take the money. Let's make the money the most important thing. Doesn't that seem like we're set up for bad bad news? Well, they didn't need to make it an illegal club unless it matters. I don't think they just throw in information for the hell of it. So you guys, I am predicting a problem. Or an opportunity. Do tell. What if just for the sake of argument, that the opportunity that I mentioned for maybe TV or something with Sophie or something else is very iffy in Midge's mind because she hates Sophie. In case you were wondering, she hates her. Got it. But what if she doesn't have any other options because they had to close down the club because it's an illegal club? Okay, so forcing her hand to have to go with the Sophie choice. It's a real Sophie's choice. <laughs> but you can see where maybe she she turns into to like a Carol Burnett or something because of the, the experience putting on a big show, right? Mm, With costumes. It a little more vaudevillian. Right. That, sketch comedy. You right, know? yeah. Okay, exactly. okay. All right. I see what you're going with that. I, I, I definitely think that the Burlesque Club doesn't feel like it's going to be forever. And maybe that's why we lingered so long on the dancers and we kind of soaked it in because it's short-lived. They do seem to give one dancer a lot of uh, attention every every episode. It seems like they use the same same dancer. Her, her act has improved. She had a kind of elaborate setup this last time where she had to, it was like, I don't know, what was she doing? Like taking a bath or? <laughs> there was the bathroom, but then there was like a window washer kind of like Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. it's complicated. She's stepping up her her. It's more game. like a sketch. Though, more like a skit or something, you know, mm-hmm. that they're doing. So, yeah, it is getting more complicated. So I put that as a high for her career this week. But the more we're talking about it, I'm I'm a little worried that it's a setup for disaster coming a little nervous now. Disaster. Talking about disaster situations, she finally does figure out who Elroy Dunham is. Were you shocked it was a lady? Very. I thought it was going to be uh, Milo Ventimiglia, but no, 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 I was fooled. I think 99% of viewers were fooled, or maybe I'm just hoping they were. <laughs> what do you What do you think? Are we just simply layering in another women versus women type career situation where it's like, whose career is more important? And what if I hurt you in order to be more successful in mine? Is that okay? How is Midge going to deal with this? Yes. I so agree all with it? all. Yes. <laughs> and um, even today, they do use male-sounding pen names when whatever it is they're writing, an audience would expect to have come from a man. Does that make sense? Very much. So if you're like a mystery writer or a thriller writer, not like a cozy mystery, but I mean like a a full-on like big bloody mystery, like a police type thing, audiences for some reason are programmed to want that to come from a man. So even if the name isn't necessarily spelled out to be like Stephen Jack, Tom Paul Daly kind of kind of name, but it just sounds like it, like her name does. 
Elroy, then that's close enough. And that she's not. I mean, her first name could be Laura Lynn. Lena. So do you think that this is okay that she's that she No, is... but but it's it is it is journalism and journalism journalists have to be sort of what would you call it? I'm gonna predatory. Say, or like cutthroaty yeah. then. Yeah. The way they advance in their careers to get noticed, you know, without going into the illegal area. And she's not, so this is what she's gotta do. What do we make of how Mitch could possibly handle this person? I mean, is this just about getting a tougher skin? This is just like a part of the Belmore career. Yeah, the heart of the career where you have to understand that sometimes people are not going to like you. And, and it's not even that she doesn't like you. her. No, yeah. she's just using her. Right. Ooh. I mean, if if Lenny hadn't been an ass in this this part of the the show, he might be able to tell her something like, "I never get positive press," and you know, or at the time. Or maybe in his early career, he he didn't because of the same kind of stuff that she stands out for, mm-hmm. either the topics or the way he presented or something like that. But I don't know if it matters. I really think that the woman on woman violence here is the problem for her. That once she got there and that she realized that's what this was really about. And that no matter what she did, no matter how good her act was, this woman was getting praised for being nasty how do you deal with that? You know, I mean, it's not that you're not doing well. It's not that it's not that you're just learning the ropes. You could be great, but she has to do bad. It's kind of your we have to hate each other in order for us to move up. I don't know how you deal with it. And I don't know if it's just about getting a thicker skin. Although Sophie promises to deal with her as part of the package, why you should come to NBC. So maybe Sophie really will deal with her and maybe this really will go away well i hope so i don't believe in the no press is bad press uh axiom i don't think that's true i think especially in like entertainment when people say this entertainment sucks that doesn't make people i mean most people with limited time and limited money to be like you know what i'm gonna test that theory or are they gonna say this entertainment's great i'm gonna go do that you know, that's how people make their decisions. She needs to eliminate that kind of that kind of thing if she can. And she, I don't, it's not going to work to do like briskets or obviously <laughs> going and talking to her didn't matter. Right. So, no. Well, and it's not, I mean, it is not in her best interest at all to care what Midge thinks. You know, there's no win for her to care about what Midge thinks. So it does make me like throw my chips in with this idea that Sophie and Midge have to work together. Like Sophie can take care of things like this, then Midge needs her to take care of things like this. They just need to not see each other at the show. If that's what the, does it if, mean? If that's the plan, well, although that I, I think that's plan. very temporary. I Dude, think that th- was the plan. It was Sophie who was peeping her face in because she heard the laughs. She couldn't keep herself away. Oh, Sophie, egos. So many issues. Speaking of egos, Paul. Speak about it. We got some bruised egos having to do with Lenny Bruce this week. That made me very sad. So sad. So sad. She runs out of the car at the end of episode five, and it was like crazy ending, right? She just like goes into a blur outside the garden. It was like, what just happened? Turns out Lenny Bruce is in the house. Her house. What the heck? We can't have Lenny in the mid-60s without showing who he was, even though we've been not even beating around the bush. We just haven't even been showing the fact that he had a problem with with drugs. 
And in this, they're actually very kind to his legacy in not being very specific about why he might have been passed out on the street. Right. Just a lot of allusions to like there's an issue here. And obviously his change in personality with Midge was huge. I mean, if you see me in the, in the you know, on the sidewalk again, don't don't pick me up kind of thing. Who is this guy? You know, this isn't the guy who was just offering to come in, you know, come into my hotel room kind of thing. So this is a big change in Lenny, a sad change in Lenny. And we knew this was coming. We all know that Lenny passes away mid 60s here. So we know this can't go anywhere. But it's still sad to see this friendship bust, you know, like this. You kind of just wanted him to kind of go out in the night <laughs> and not have to have like a breaking down of their friendship, you know, just have her read it in the paper and be sad, not have to go through the grinder. But, you know, for people who have dealt with an, with a, a, a friend who has an addiction or a loved one with an addiction, there's the grinder part of it, right? Where you try to help and they don't appreciate it. And they're doing it, like you said, in a very light touch kind of way, you know, because mm -hmm. this is a comedy for the most part. but you can feel the pain that's going on here. It, it's terribly sad. Well, it made me sad to watch, even though they, they made it funny, you know, the delivery man, like, screw you, Bruce, or whatever he says, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. drives off. But still, he wanted something that, that he already kind of broke, this idea of like this professional separation, you know, between professional association and personal life. Like the fact that he, he never shared that he had a kid. I hear what you're saying, but it's very different for him to meet your kids and your parents and be in your house. All of that is 100% busting that line between we can joke and we can even be super flirty and maybe even go have sex. But like you didn't know about my kid and my world and I don't need to know about your kids and your parents and all that stuff. In a way, yeah, she did kind of break that code, right? Mm -hmm. But she was doing it because she put friendship first friendship but not like professional friendship if you yeah, will another lesson about friendship maybe i think so super hard to learn very hard and painful really painful that mitch's face was like just falling you know and what a, a you mentioned that it was like comic relief to have that milkman but also the poor man can't get a second you know of of quiet you know he's being chased down by fans mm -hmm. at all you know every second it's got to be exhausting. You could see why he would turn to things like drugs and alcohol to just get relief. Two more episodes to go this season. One more week of viewing. Two hours until we have to wait another year for the final season. I like my own theory about needing to build up to this thing that, that's going to carry us as like a cliffhanger. Is this thing, whatever, going to happen? And I think that thing is going to be TV for Midge on screen not just warming up the crowd <laughs> you know i like that i like that very much the other cliffhanger thing that we have coming into the seventh and eighth episodes joel and may and their whole pregnancy mm. holy smokes we thought that the that the craziest thing that happened was going to happen in this block of episodes was that they didn't have dinner with the parents and that just fell apart no it's the pregnancy situation. Now, for all of you Gilmore Girls fans, I am a little nervous that May is being given the Lane Kim treatment. I'm scared they're going to make her pregnant. And then somehow, because she has a kid, she has to lose out on every career aspiration. She has to sit out on life. I don't want to see that happen for, for May. 
she said a thousand times, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. What do you think, Paul? Going to be a doctor? Cliffhanger us on episode eight, or are we going to figure this out? The practical steps of becoming a doctor, going through residency, all that stuff are very real things that if you give birth in the middle of it, I'm not saying it can't be done. I just... Paul Daly doesn't know how it works. Well, sure you do. I mean, I think as a as a college student, can't you take like a year off and come back? I mean, I kind of think she could do that. Now, one thing I want to say is that they have set Joel up to be essentially not a stay-at-home dad per se, but like Home a caretaker, yeah. right? I mean, but he has taken care of, of Esther and Ethan and has been capable of doing that, you know? And he does have parents who have always been willing to help out. Surely would welcome a baby, I think. Now- the big question mark, of course, is we have this race element that has not been addressed in any way because they have not met May. So I think we've got the race issue and then we have the religious issue and then we have the fact that they're having a baby out of wedlock. Like we've got a lot of challenges for these two to get through with both sets of parents. This isn't just going to be about what Moish and Shirley think. May's parents are going to have a lot of issues with all these things, too, in addition to her career path. They're building it up in a way that they could do anything. Like if it had been just a guess who's coming to dinner midstream sort of moment, then all of the stuff we've been saying so far would have written itself in terms of uh, when are you going to find a Jewish girl kind of kind of commentary from his parents. But now you have the whatever, you know, her skipping dinner scene which was a very flat moment combined now with the pregnancy now you've got this uh, emotional buildup right to this moment that they could subvert expectations and be like welcome to the family then all of a sudden we we'd be like kicking ourselves for not having faith in Moish and Shirley for being better people but it's not just Moish and Shirley and that's the thing like but May's- we only know them no, May's parents have been involved several times. If those are her parents, we have seen them several times. And while but we that's haven't, the thing. we don't even know if they are. All right, but May has just made that be a part of her world. Like we don't know where she lives and all those things that she she pointed out. I think that the race, religion, not married, pregnant, and her schooling is all one package for both sides of the family to deal with. And you're right. Maybe they'll all be cool. That seems unlikely. <laughs> I've watched a lot of TV I and just, it never goes like that. How about I've lived a lot of life and I don't know a lot of situations where people are like, yay. <laughs> I think I've watched more TV than lived life, actually. <laughs> That's probably very true for all of us. But, you know, I'm excited for seven and eight. I think that a lot happened in five and six overall. We had a ton of movement for Midge in like every aspect from, you know, the newspaper articles, the strip club, the TV stuff, the shy Baldwin stuff. Holy smokes. Like so much was touched upon for Susie. I mean, so much growth, so much movement in the in the Susie Meyerson and Associates. I still think the Associates is going to be Tess and Imogene at the end of the day. I cannot overlook those Tupperware selling skills. I think we've got a lot coming down. 80 words a minute. Yeah. Girl's got it. Girl has got it. I'm excited. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Amazon or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends. And Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. 
Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.